because the nature have rights. And why do so many of us find the idea that nature itself might have rights so compelling or so preposterous? And why is that there are so many serious scholars of both human rights and environmental policies that simply avoid this issue altogether? In this episode on human rights, we will go deeper into this fascinating, yet a bit thought-provoking discussion through the lens of Walter F. Baber. Baber is the 2017-18 Fulbright Distinguished Chair of Public International Law at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute and the Law Faculty at Lund University. And Baber has spent the last 30 years on environmental policies. On Human Rights is a podcast where we bring you interviews with experts or others about human rights and international humanitarian law. And it is broadcast from the Ralf Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. And the lecture you'll hear shortly was part of a series of human rights related lectures which the Institute is co-organizing with the Association of Foreign Affairs, a student organization here at Lund University. And the lecture goes under the banner of the so-called Wednesday Night Rights. Enjoy. So give him a warm applause and uh, enjoy the lecture. Thank you very much. The rights of nature. I've been writing on environmental policy for about 30 years. Uh, I mentioned it to, to a friend of mine this morning. And for that entire time, I've been avoiding this topic, um, which is not a profile in courage, I'll, I'll admit. Uh, but I have good company, because a lot of people avoid this topic. Uh, in, in fact, I would hazard to guess that most people who study environmental policy uh, tend to avoid this topic. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, one is it's the argument over the rights of nature tends to be an argument among people who agree about 99% of everything. They just disagree about this. You know, think medieval th theology in terms of how worthwhile those arguments are. Uh, it's, it's just not a fun argument to be involved in because it's, there's so little likelihood that anybody's gonna change their mind. It matters so little whether anybody does or they don't. So that's one reason to avoid it. Another reason to avoid it is it, all, it tends to get personal very quickly. Um, and that's not because uh, environmental policy people are any more uh, sensitive <laughs> than, than your average run of people. They're not really. Um, but it's an argument that doesn't take place within, uh, within a, a structure, uh, within, within a, um, a paradigm, uh, like, a le like the legal profession or like a scholarly discipline. Uh, there's no set of rules for how you engage in the argument and what even counts as a good argument. And as a consequence, people talk past each other a lot. And it only takes like 60 seconds of that for people to think, well, you're not disagreeing with my argument, you're just disagreeable. Uh, so that's another good reason to avoid the whole topic. Um, a third reason, though, is worth talking about in a little more detail, uh, and that is people are not always real clear on what the stakes are, on what difference it makes one way or the other. And that's because there are two slightly different theories about the rights of nature that often get conflated in spite of the fact that they have important differences. Uh, the first one uh, I call the interested intervener model. 
And this is the one that you see practiced all the time. Uh, there's a, a proposed uh, environmental project of some kind, usually involving chopping something down or digging something up. Uh, and a few people who don't want it done intervene, and they make an argument that whatever part of the natural environment you're going to wreck, I, I care about that because I camp there, I pipe there, I fish there, I hunt there, whatever it is. You're going to damage my, uh, my interests because I utilize that place. Um, and obviously people who do that uh, are usually uh, the, the human mask that an environmental organization wears when it goes to court. Uh, because you have to, in, in most judicial systems, you have to present real, honest-to-goodness people who have real interests in real potential damage. Um, and that's why I call them an interested intervener, uh, because they intervene in the process of the project's approval. Uh, may, they may be arguing the rights of nature, but, but when you strip it away and you look at, at the legal briefs, what you really find is their individual interests as human beings, which I don't mean to belittle, but it's something a little different from arguing that nature has rights per se. What you're arguing is that you have rights that have very important environmental uh, stakes. That's what you're actually arguing. And for the most part, when environmental organizations go to court, that's the way they go. Uh, a, a good example of the importance of that is the Sierra Club, which probably a lot of you people have heard of the Sierra Club, maybe even you know a little bit about it. Anybody actually belong to the Sierra Club? I, I would have been surprised. Um, the Sierra Club, uh, 30 years ago, didn't have a lot of uh, members outside of, uh, of the West uh, the United States. It began its life as an organization that was primarily about protecting America's national parks. And of course, most of them are out there. Uh, most of the big ones are out there. All the big ones are out there, actually. But when they started pursuing litigation uh, as, as, a, as a policy tactic, they realized we can't just have members in Arizona, uh, Nevada, and California. We need to have members everywhere because we may want to go to court practically anywhere. So they became a fundamentally different kind of organization precisely so they could practice that kind of intervention. Uh, so that's one thing that people tend to, tend to think of, uh, and very often uh, people attribute uh, a rights of nature motivation uh, to that kind of intervention. Uh, then there's a second uh, kind, of, uh, kind of intervention uh, that, uh, that basically I, I've always called it the guardian model. I resist the temptation to call it now the guardians of the galaxy. I think maybe the guardians of the planet model might not be a bad compromise. Uh, it's most often associated with a law professor, no surprise there, uh, named Christopher Stone. Uh, and the interesting thing about, about Professor Stone is he didn't begin life as an environmentalist, he began life as a corporate law person. That's what he was teaching at the University of Southern California uh, when a case called the Sierra Club versus Morton was working its way through the federal, um, through the federal judiciary. Um, and um, he used to give a lecture in his property class, and he used to ask his property class, could a tree 
have standing to go to court. Uh, and that, that gives you a hint about how boring property classes can be, <laughs> how, how desperate property professors often become. Um, and he did that all the time. He, he used that every, every semester. Um, and he I've forgotten exactly how, but he became aware of the Sierra Club versus Morton case. And the case there had to do with a place called Mineral King. Uh, and Mineral King is, uh, uh, is a subalpine valley in the Sequoia National Forest. Uh, at the time, it was right on the border of the Sequoia National Park. Uh, many of you probably know our, our national parks, a lot of them are con contained completely in a larger national forest, which gives you two bureaucracies to worry about, the National Park Service and the Forest Service. So anyway, Mineral King, a uh, very, very pretty valley, uh, about, uh, about one mile wide, about seven miles long, very rugged. Uh, at the time that, uh, that this case was being argued, there was one way in, a small dirt track uh, that was maintained by Tulare County uh, sometimes. It was only open for a short period of time during the year, and in a given year, there were maybe, oh, three or 400 people who got permits uh, to go into mineral because it was really very isolated, and if you got in trouble, it was expensive to come and pull you out. So now you have an impression about what Mineral King is. As I said, it was not in Sequoia National Park, it was in uh, Sequoia National Forest. And the Forest Service has much more of a multi-use concept about nature than the Park Service does. And they looked at this beautiful, I mean, just to die for, subalpine valley and they thought nobody gets to go there we need to have some development bids we need to get somebody in here to make this available for recreational purposes so they sent out a bunch of bids uh, sent out a bunch of uh, requests for proposals and they got in a bunch of bids and the winning bid you guys can all guess all evening long the winning bid came in from Walt Disney Walt Disney had the winning bid the bid was to develop a ski resort in Mineral King that was going to accommodate about one and a half million visitors a year. It was going to cost about $35 million. Um, and the key to it, the, the reason that it worked, was because anybody who developed it had to figure out how to get in there. And for Walt Disney, the state of California said, we'll build the 20 miles of freeway you need. It was going to cost more than the development. It was going to be more expensive than the resort to build the road to get in. And it wasn't even going to get all the way in. It was just going to get to a nine-story parking garage at the foot of the valley. And there was going to be a cogwheel railroad that actually took you up from there to the resort. Can you imagine what Disney would have done with that train? I mean, it boggles the mind. If you've ever been to one of their amusement parks, they do wonderful things with trains. They make them look like the most incredible things. So in, in, a, in a way, I'm sad that it never happened because I would have liked to have seen what they did with that cogwheel train. Probably would have been, oh, I don't know, the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train or something. Uh, it, it would have been fun. Uh, at any rate, the reason that that was the winning bid was because the state said, we'll put in the freeway for that project. Now this was at the time when Ronald Reagan was governor of California. We all remember Ronald Reagan fondly. 
what a spendthrift he was. He'd open up the public wallet and pay for all kinds of things, right? No. Um, why in the world was he going to pay for it? It's because Ronald Reagan was a labor activist in his youth. Huh? Yes, he was. He was actually a labor leader. He was president of the Spring Actors Guild. <laughs> Where he met Walt Disney. So his old buddy Walt made a little trip up to Sacramento. They had a little chat, had a little drink, and pretty soon, that's the plan for Mineral King. Just thought you'd like to know what the background was. That's why the Sierra Club was so pissed off. And they were. They wanted to stop that. They wanted to stop that in the worst way. And maybe they chose the worst way to try, but I'll let you decide that. At about that time, the Sierra Club went through a change of leadership and they wanted to get even more aggressive in terms of litigation. So instead of finding some of their members to come and bitch and moan about the Mineral King development, they filed an action as a private attorney general to protect the public interest on behalf of their client, their named plaintiff, Mineral King. They did not sue on behalf of a, of a real human being. They sued on behalf of the valley. Shazam, we have the argument. A real honest to goodness, straightforward argument that some component of the natural world has a right that you can pursue in court. Now, that's not maybe the first, it's the first time I know of it being done in the United States for sure. Maybe it had been tried earlier elsewhere, I don't know. Uh, but that was a serious organization that had real litigation resources making a direct play to argue the rights of nature. And the district court judge, bless his soul, said, yeah, you know what, I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, I, I, think I, will, I think I will grant standing to, uh, to the Sierra Club to appear on behalf of the Mineral King Valley. Too good to be true, right? Yeah, you know it didn't work out that way. Uh, the Circuit Court of Appeals said, no, 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 no. Uh, that's an improper grant of standing, and the Supreme Court, of course, agreed. It's, they vacated the, uh, the suit, but they gave see, the Sierra Club leave to amend it if they wanted to, and the Sierra Club was ready, and they were handing in some real people, named some actual human beings as the plaintiffs. And the suit went forward. Boy, that was scary. Uh, so that was the, the first really major effort to argue the rights of nature. Now, what does that have to do with Professor Stone? Just this. He became aware of that. And at about warp five, he wrote this journal article. Um, it needed to get out double quick. So he wrote a journal article called Should Trees Have Standing that appeared in the Southern California Law Review in 1972. It became a book in 1974, which is not that hard because some of you guys have been subjected to reading law review articles from the United States uh, and uh, they buy printers in at a discount. Uh, those are some long articles. It doesn't take much to blow up a law review article that you see in the United States into a small book. So it took him only two years to do it. 
But the interesting thing about that book is it's still of sufficient importance that about, oh, eight years ago or something, Oxford University Press published a 35th anniversary commemorative edition of it. They still thought that it was important enough to bring it out in a new commemorative edition. So it made some waves. Now, the problem is it didn't make any headway in court. Only one of the, of the Supreme Court justices, William O. Douglas, thought that that was a good argument. Uh, and Douglas, I have to concede, Douglas has written some of the best dissents in the history of the court. Uh, that's one of the things he did really particularly well. Uh, because he knew he had lost, and he sort of freed himself up, and it almost flowed like poetry sometimes, his dissents. But a dissent is a dissent is a dissent, also known as losing. Now, who lost? Well, <clears throat> as it happens, Mineral King didn't lose. Um, as I say, Sierra Club refiled with real people. Uh, uh, Douglas dissented. But the Mineral King plan fell apart. It fell apart for a couple of reasons. One is they had a lot of trouble with the environmental impact statement uh, that they had to file. Uh, and they also had leakage in the funding, let's just call it that. Uh, it got delayed so long that eventually the bad publicity and uh, uh, having the story told the way I told it a few minutes ago on television over and over again made it a little bit politically you know, iffy. So the money for the highway disappeared. As a consequence, not only did the development never take place, but Mineral King is now part of the National Park. It got moved by Congress from the National Forest to the National Park. And park rangers are a lot more inherently protective of the environment, come what may, than forest rangers are. That's just the way those two organizations are. So if the Sierra Club lost, um, it, it lost the case, but it won the war. They're, they're, uh, the Sierra Club has an empty champagne bottle on its shelf, which all these public interest organizations in the, in the United States have their champagne bottles shelves. And there's one up there that says Mineral King on it, because they celebrated that as a victory. I can guarantee you they did. Who hated it? Professor Stone. Not just because it wasn't a victory for his view, but it was a victory without using his view. Uh, he, was, he was unhappy with the outcome. He was particularly annoyed by the way the outcome took place. Um, so that kind of, of ardor is commonly associated with this guardian approach. There's two things at work any time you see that being pursued. One thing is protecting the environment. The other thing is making a political point. Um, and uh, there, there's, a, there's a saying in the United States, that, and it's not a very nice saying, but I'm going to use it anyway. There's more than one way to skin a cat. I'm sure you've heard it before. Well, the right way to skin a cat depends on which cat you want to skin. What kind of victory are you looking for? What kind of point are you trying to make? Uh, and Stone was trying to make a political point. He was firmly convinced that, that nature should be directly represented by the right kind of plaintiff 
And the thing that really annoyed him was he had the Sierra Club in mind. I mean, he couldn't have been happier with the lineup of actors. That was exactly what he had in mind. And what he wanted to do was to have the federal judiciary say, okay, you can sue on behalf of an inanimate object or a big valley full of them if you have the right guardian. And he chose the word guardian intentionally because guardians are, in a lot of legal systems, guardians are named to represent um, uh, children. They're named to represent legally incompetent adults. Uh, so the whole idea of, rep uh, of being represented by a guardian was very congenial to, uh, to US law. And there are, there are equivalent um, institutions in a lot of other legal traditions. So why was he so disappointed? What, what, what was he looking for here? Why, why did he think it was worth the trouble to try to make that straightforward rights of nature argument? Well, one point he made over and over again, and it's historically true, but it's also historically contingent is that natural resources issues fare better in the judiciary in the United States than they fare in Congress. Uh, if most environmental organizations have a better chance in court than they have in the legislature, most of the time. Now, the part of the story that doesn't tell is that the rights you, right you have to have, the rights you have to find in order to establish yourself as uh, as, a, as a private attorney general is some kind of statutory framework um, uh, Stone had in mind either the Wilderness Act or the National Environmental Policy Act. He thought those were going to provide you with the structure of rights which accrue to individual human beings that you can use as a predicate to establish an organization as a private attorney general. That's how he thought it would work out. So he thought either either an interest group like the Sierra Club would, or he thought maybe, uh, you know, maybe that would be something that some other uh, agency of government might do. Uh, perhaps uh, the Water Reclamation Service or some other uh, agency of government, or perhaps a state agency of government um, in, would, would fight the federal agency. Uh, that's what he had in mind, some, some guardian organization so that's who the guardians of the planet would be. Uh, and he just had more confidence in going to court. No, no big surprise, he's, he's a lawyer. Uh, there's a lot of us crawling around the continent in the United States, uh, and, and uh, happily, only one out of 10 of us ever, ever go to court. Um, so that's one of his big points. Another point was he, he thought that you could, that you could establish the direct damage that you need to use to go to court more easily if you were just going to court on behalf of the, of the natural resource. You could establish it more directly and more honestly. You didn't have to have some person who said, you know, who would get up and say, I, you know, I get 50% of my protein from fish that I catch in that river. You know, you didn't have to do that. Uh, it was much more straightforward to just say, that's really gonna damage uh, the, the Mineral King Valley, if you do that. A cogwheel railroad, for crying out loud. Uh, you know, how much damage do you think that's going to do? So he thought that you could more honestly and more directly establish the damages that you needed. Uh, he also thought that you would be getting better qualified parties. He thought there's no way that, that, uh, that a random draw of Sierra Club members who will pick just because they were willing to say that they camped out in Mineral King 
Uh, there's no way they were as good a plaintiff as the Sierra Club itself would be. Now, why would you care about how, how high quality? The Disney people, by the way, have plenty of good lawyers. They'd have been a good quality uh, party to that lawsuit. Stone thought you need uh, an equivalent organization on the other side. Uh, and, and the Sierra Club was, was a good example. Uh, why do you care about that if you're a law professor? Well, you care about that because you want the case tried properly. You, you, you want the best arguments made, you want the proper parties making them, so that you can invoke the doctrine of race judicata to preclude more claims on the same subject. Why do you care about that? Because that's your sales bid to the judiciary. I'm gonna save all this judicial resources. You only have to hear this thing one time. You don't have to hear a parade of horribles from everybody uh, in a west of, of uh, the Mississippi River about how bad an idea this is. You're gonna have to hear it one time from the best possible advocate. And that's what would convince the judiciary to do it. <coughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> that's the argument. Um, and another argument he made, and this is, this is actually a true argument, Courts are making those individual intervener, those interested intervener uh, um, cases harder to bring. They're sort of ratcheting up the requirement. How direct is your relationship with this place? You tell me you camp out over there all, all the time there. Show me your camp permits. How many camp permits for Mineral King have you had over the last 10 years? Bring them in and show. Um, yeah, they're, they're making it harder to do that. If you could get around it, by just representing Mineral King. That would be an easier, uh, an easier way to go. Um, two other things. Rights. We talk about rights in a magical language. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a, 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 a discursive trump card. When someone plays the rights card, uh, they're playing with a very strong kind of language. It's got political import. It's got legal import. Most particularly, it's got the capacity to scare the bejesus out of bureaucrats. And those are the people that make these decisions anyway. I mean, who was making this decision? It, you know, it wasn't, with the exception of Ronald Reagan, who got out of it when, it when it got hot, the decision makers were all bureaucrats. So you need to scare these people, and rights talk is the way to do it. Because that's the scariest kind of talk. And the other thing is, the, the other argument is this kind of litigation, sort of introducing this idea through the media, covering this kind of litigation, <clears throat> would, have, would eventually close the psychological gap between human beings and the non-human elements of the environment. People would start to think about it that way. People would start to think, well, maybe that rock over there doesn't have rights, maybe the tree doesn't have rights. Uh, but damn, the bears, uh, they must have rights. They're covered in some sense. When someone rips the roof off your car to get your lunch, you, you, you think, well, these, <laughs> these animals must have rights because they're, they're, they're so animated and not in the Disney way. You know, they don't have gears and stuff in them. So there was, there was legal ground to be plowed and there was political advantage to be sought. And that's what the argument was all about. So if it's so damn swell, 
what's the problem? Well, you knew there had to be problems. Uh, one is, courts don't really buy it. <laughs> it hasn't worked. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for it. One is, if you're going to have guardians of the planet, who are you going to choose? That's going to be a pretty naughty problem, isn't it? Because you'll have people lined up. Uh, you'll have grassroots organizations, like the Sierra Club, and you'll have astroturf organizations. You'll have organizations that are put together to do nothing other than to try to get in front of the Sierra Club and chill them out by being appointed the guardian of Mineral King. And a little later, you'll find out, well, you know, these people actually all worked at Disneyland. Hmm. So that's, that's one of the dangers, uh, is that you have to have the right people in charge and how are you going to figure it out? What kind of criteria uh, are you going to use to choose them? What part of the environment are you going to assign to them? Like everything? Like literally guardians of the planet? Are you just going to give them, uh, just give them a geographical area? Are you going to say the animals only? Or are you going to say uh, animals and, and, and uh, you know, their individual bio biological niches? Or how are you going to define what they're, what they're representing? Um, you're going to let them do it, or is the court going to do it? Um, what's the theory of the case? That's what it comes down to. What's your theory of the case? Uh, what's your argument about why you should get what it is you want? Uh, it's just not clear how, how that would happen. And those two things, the figuring out the theory of the case, figuring out who's in charge of it, you do that wrong, you don't get the payoff. What's the payoff? Race to the cottage, remember? That's the whole motivation. Do it once, do it right, never do it again. Kind of like the bar exam. Do it once, do it right, never do it again. If you get that, those other things screwed up, if you get the wrong theory of the case, the wrong advocates, whatever, you're going to have to do it again. You don't get the benefit. You've, you've given away the shop, and you don't get anything for it. So that's not something that the judiciary was, was very keen about. <clears throat> and the other thing is, it, it, that approach kind of puts the judiciary in the position of trespassing on the political branches. Uh, most judiciaries understand, I mean, we all, we all care very much about the independence of the judiciary in, in a democracy. Um, I don't think we'd be here if we didn't. People who actually work in the judiciary understand that the judiciaries of the world are able to hold on to that independence because they don't abuse it. They don't get carried away. They don't stick their fingers into political stuff. In fact, in the United States, you will very often hear a court describe something as a political question. The political question doctrine is a way that the federal courts in the United States simply say, well, this whole set of arguments you've raised, yeah, we think there's spiffy arguments, take them to your elected official. So they opt out of anything that they think um, uh, is, uh, is uh, a straightforward political argument. Okay, so those are the pros and cons. This is the point where I tell you what to think, right? Wrong. This is the point where I fess up. I start by fessing up that those reasons I gave you for not talking about this subject, 
there are good reasons for not talking about this subject. There are reasons that actually I share with a lot of my colleagues in environmental policy, but they're not the key reason that I haven't talked about it before. The key reason is because I thought I already knew what the answer was, but I didn't know the reasons. When you have a problem like that, where you think you, you just instinctively you know what the answer is, but you don't know why, what are you going to be accused of? Motivated reasoning. That's where we're going to end up, and motivated reasoning is the last thing that anybody in, a, in, in an academic position wants to be accused of. Um, you know, when you're looking for reasons for an outcome you've already decided on, all the reasons that support that are going to sound really intelligent. And all the reasons that run the other direction are going to smell a little off. And it's just human nature. So confession number one, that's the reason I've avoided it. I've always had an, an instinctive sense of what the answer is. But I've never put in the serious work necessary to come up with the reasons that I, that I could be confident in, that I could defend without fear that I was engaging in, in motivated reasoning. Um, so here's the reasons. Uh, get ready to be pissed off. First, the rights of nature argument is conceptually incoherent. At its core, it's just conceptually incoherent as far as I can tell. And saying that is bound to offend people. Um, but the problem is that rights discourses are inherently reciprocal. They follow something that the, the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas calls a discursive ethics. A rights holder doesn't simply assert a claim. Uh, the claiming has to follow certain rules. Some of them are, are rules of standing that, that courts formally adopt. Um, a lot of them are social conventions um, cultural traditions, other kinds of, of rules. But what they all add up to is good faith. The discursive ethics of human rights discourse is good faith. If you press a bad faith claim, your expectation that the, that the bearer of the obligation you're asserting will recognize your claim of right is effectively negated. So it, it, it runs both ways. There are legitimate expectations that the duty bearer has of the rights holder. Don't press vexatious, bad faith claims. That's, that's part of the discursive ethics of human rights discourse. And can non-human elements of the natural environment have that kind of a reciprocal relationship with human beings. I just, I, don't, I can't imagine how that works. So for that reason, it seems to me that, that the rights discourses that tried to run in that track would pretty quickly degenerate into just contests for competitive advantage like human beings fight in almost every other context. Now, what about fictive rights claims? What about let's pretend claims? Uh, okay, you can do that. 
People do that all the time. A lawyer will file on behalf of Mineral King and half a dozen Sierra Club members. You'll, you'll file with both arguments. What's wrong with that? Uh, well, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not the king of legal ethics, but I just, I just don't think a responsible attorney usually does that. Uh, if you're trying to make a political point, you're not advancing the interest of your client. Now, if you legitimately think that that's going to improve your chances of prevailing, okay, that's an argument that I'd be willing to listen to, but I'm a little dubious of that. So, okay, maybe there's a, there's a reason for citing the, uh, the, the natural resource itself as a party along with other natural human beings. Um, and as a matter of fact, that was kind of the, the heart of Justice Douglas's dissent in this case. That's kind of what he, what he had in mind. So he didn't, he didn't necessarily uh, see, see the, uh, the Stone grand plan uh, either. So fictive rights discourses, oh, okay, that's not an illegitimate argument. I just don't like it because I don't like to, st to stand around while people torture the language. There's, there's plenty of obfuscation in this world uh, without lawyers adding their own special variety. Uh, and so it's more, uh, it's more of, a, of, a, of a personal uh, sense than anything else. Um, a third reason, I don't think it's a necessary argument to make. I just don't think it's necessary. Uh, there's another book, a more recent book, by a guy named David Boyd. It's called The Rights of Nature. It was published late last year, as a matter of fact. And it's, a, it's actually an outstanding book. Uh, and, and he talks about, he, he takes a much more global perspective. He talks about these uh, interested intervener actions all over the world and how much progress is being made with that kind of approach to defending the environment. Uh, in other words, he describes exactly the kind of thing that, that Professor Stone described uh, almost 50 years ago, uh, despairingly. Boyd is describing them enthusiastically. You know, look at what's being achieved here. Now, maybe it's nothing more than the fact that Stone is, a, is an American lawyer, and American lawyers are notoriously focused on the American legal experience rather than the international legal experience. Uh, that's part of why I keep fleeing for other places you know, to do these things is, is so I don't get completely trapped uh, in, because the, 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 the legal culture in the United States is very strong. Uh, lawyers have a very strong sense of themselves as lawyers, even if they don't practice anymore, which I haven't for a long time. So maybe it's just that Boyd has a much more global perspective on the matter than Stone does, so he's much more cheerful uh, about the rights of nature light. Maybe that's all that it is. Um, but my attitude is, let's not go off on sort of goofy new theories before we've really mined out something that appears to be working. This appears to be actually uh, creating new law worldwide when that new law in all those countries gets to be dominant enough in its in its position with respect to those issues, what do you have? International law people, can we say it all together? Customary law. 
you can make good progress one country at a time. Now, admittedly, there's 193 places that you have to do your work, uh, but you know, so so it's the so it's the International Lawyer Full Employment Act. Is that a bad thing? I don't I don't see that as a bad thing. So that's my third reason. The fourth reason is the most important one. I think that the full rights of nature argument, the, the real, honest to goodness, guardians of the planet argument, surrenders very hard won moral ground. And what I mean by that is this is just my own personal view. The human rights movement is the first system of thought in human history of global import that is able to acquit the value of the individual human being without metaphysics. You don't have to believe in religion. It's, it's a metaphysics-free way of establishing the absolute value of the individual human being. And we did it for ourselves. Now admittedly, it took a hell of a rotten experience to get us to do it. And I think you all know the experience I'm talking about. Let's not surrender the one core of good result that came from the Holocaust. Let's not go back to having metaphysics and I, and I have never heard an argument for attributing rights to nature per se that wasn't essentially metaphysical. Now admittedly it doesn't have to be religion, although it does tend off into that direction a little bit. But what it does do is it gives you a new class of guardians. I think we've grown up enough we don't need them. It's just a new priesthood. As a lawyer, I don't want to be responsible for taking us backwards that way. That's why I would never make the argument. And with that conclusion, we put a stop to this podcast, Does the Nature Have Rights, given by Walter F. Faber. And on Human Rights is broadcast from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. And if you found this podcast fascinating and you want to share it with your friends, then please do. And if you want to listen to similar interviews or subjects, then be sure to check up on our website where you will find more interviews on these subjects. You can just simply go to rwi.lu.se. Thank you.